I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, we'll be looking at the first eight verses of this chapter this morning. While you're turning there, um, just wanted to begin with uh, a reflection upon a, a book that Joseph Tracy wrote on the Great Awakening. And in the beginning, he highlights uh, the context of New England in early 18th century. Unbelievers, he talks about, were, in, were allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper as long as they had been baptized. There was really little to no regard for theological or moral examination of those who participated. Eventually, he says, even the pulpits were filled with unconverted men. And so when Jonathan Edwards began preaching a series on justification by faith, he attacked the notion that any could escape the judgment of God by their works. Uh, he proclaimed the holiness of God and the rules of justice that demands the punishment of sin. And so he writes, it was then a dreadful thing, says Jonathan Edwards, it was then a dreadful thing amongst us to lie out of Christ. In other words, to not have a relationship with Christ, in danger every day of dropping into hell. And what persons' minds were intent upon was to escape for their lives and to fly from the wrath to come. I do believe that's one reason that God inspired Revelation. It describes the terrifying wrath of God in such vivid detail that we will do whatever we can to ensure our ultimate Safety, even if that means that we won't escape its effects entirely. We'll understand that more as we continue to consider the wrath of God, you know, the, the impact of, of that wrath being poured out upon the world and the, its relationship to the church. And some want to suggest that the church completely escapes all the impact and effects of that because we're not here. And, and as, as we've already talked about, that's not the way we're reading Revelation. So the first section of Revelation focused upon the letters to the seven churches, but it opened up with this glorious vision of the Son of Man. Uh, and he was dressed for judgment. He had a two-edged sword extending from his mouth, revealed his readiness to execute his opposition. Um, his letters encouraged the universal church to persevere through tribulation in every age, and it warned them to repent. And so those themes from the, from the letters to the churches, we continue to see throughout Revelation. So this second section focuses upon seven seals, but just as the first section began with this glorious vision of the Son of Man, so too this second section begins with a glorious vision of the heavenly throne room. We looked at that the last uh, four weeks in chapters four and five. So we considered the worthiness of God as creator and Jesus as redeemer. So as the lamb took the scroll from him who was seated on the throne, immediately the four living creatures and the 24 elders and then myriads upon myriads of angels surrounding them, and eventually all of creation joins in this chorus of praise to the lamb. And so we need to keep that context in mind, right? Jesus has just received authority upon his ascension to the throne of his father, and that's a, that's a parallel passage with Daniel chapter 7. You see the same thing. Jesus has ascended 
to heaven, and he's received authority and dominion. In fact, it's consistent with what Jesus says after his resurrection. I've received all authority. And so we find him now in Revelation chapter 6, opening up the seven seals. Rather than the seals representing the beginning of some future judgment, some far-off future vision of a future judgment, right? This is, he is, he is opening seals that are revealing a tribulation that began upon his ascension. At least parts of this tribulation have already begun upon his ascension, and it should mark the entire church age. And so the tribulation that is revealed in the seven seals has an impact upon the whole world. The church does not escape the effects of these judgments, but she is preserved through them by her sovereign Lord. She's protected. So even here, we must remember who is seated at the center of the heavenly throne and who is opening these seals. This morning, we'll look at the first four seals of judgment, and they are all united by this image of a horse with a rider. In a few weeks, we'll see the next few seals. And then before John witnesses the lamb opening the seventh and final seal in chapter 8, verse 1, he describes the, the sealing of the saints. The exact same word there in chapter 7, sealing the saints for salvation and protection. So I like how Rezegui states it. He says, as the seals are unsealed, the saints are sealed. As the seals are unsealed, the saints are sealed. While, the, while these saints gather before the throne and before the Lamb in chapter 7, verse 9, John asks one of the elders about their identity. Who are these? And the elder replies, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, chapter 7, verse 14. In other words, while Jesus is bringing judgment upon the world, he is sanctifying and sealing a people for himself. In the midst of tribulation, Christ is building his church. And nothing, including the devil himself, can prevail against his sovereign will. And so if I could summarize this section, I would say Christ sovereignly uses tribulation to both sanctify his people and execute judgment upon his enemies. So before we read the passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage and its terrifying image. Lord, we, we ask that you would cause us to feel that fear and dread if we are outside of Christ, if we do not belong to you, if we have not found peace through the blood of the Lamb, then Lord, cause us to fly to him, cause us to cling to him, because this vision is a terrifying one. And we know that Christ himself is sovereign over it. And, and until he finally comes in his return to fully judge sin, he allows time to come to repentance. So Lord, bring people to yourself, even this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard 
one of the four living creatures, say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. And he opened the second seal and I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened a third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Amen. This is God's holy word. So as we look at these, each of these seals in order, and if you're following along in the outline, I'll fill in the blanks there. The first seal in verses 1 and 2 is conquest. The background for this is in Zechariah, God sends out four groups of almost identical colored horses, uh, identical to the colors of the horses mentioned here in Revelation. Um, there's a, a little bit of a difference in the fourth horse, uh, but you have this description of these horses that go to patrol the earth in Zechariah chapter 1 and 6. They're sent to judge the nations who treated Israel harshly. So likewise, in Revelation 6, 1 through 8, God is sending these judgments upon the enemies of his people. And if, if that's the, the Old Testament background, then we should begin by reading it in, with that context in mind, that God is sending out judgment Upon his enemies. But we do face a, a, a challenge here in the very first writer. Who is this first writer? And I looked and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Well, in chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, Jesus returns in judgment riding upon a white horse and wearing many crowns. So many scholars have argued that the rider of this first horse must also be Jesus. They argue that the description of victory is fitting for Christ, who is often referred to as conquering his enemies at multiple places in Revelation. He's found with a sharp sickle wearing a crown and sitting upon a white cloud in chapter 14, verse 14. White appears 14 times in Revelation, and it's positively describing either the holiness of God, the holiness of Christ, or even of the saints, the holiness of God's people. However, the beast is also said to conquer the saints in multiple places in chapter 11 and 13. The background of Zechariah groups the purpose of these four horses together, it's not as if one horse had a positive purpose and then the other three had negative judgments to bring. The first was gathering in the remnant and the, the other three were, were bringing judgment. And that's not happening, right? So, so although 
uh, you have Christ here, or you have a, this representation of a rider in white with a bow and conquering and a crown, and it's similar to the descriptions of Christ throughout Revelation. We know someone else wants to present himself as Christ. We know that there is another person who is imitating Christ at every point and wants to deceive many. So part of how Satan deceives is by imitating Christ. You see that in Revelation 12 and 13. And so wearing a white or wearing white and a crown would mislead many. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all portray the deceptive purposes of Satan during the last days. He will send many false Christs and false prophets into the world. Again, Resigui says the similarities are to be expected. The first horseman is a demonic parody of Christ, evil masquerading as good. So the four seals should be taken as a unit that depicts various kinds of satanic judgment, and yet all of it remains under the authority of Christ. It is the Lamb who is opening the seals. In this case, that judgment is through human conquest or victory. It's achieved through the deceitful schemes of the devil. This seal depicts a powerful army signified by the bow, achieving remarkable victories signified by the crown. Okay, so this first seal is fulfilled by the many conquering armies throughout history since Christ's ascension. It's fulfilled by the Roman army in the first century. We could say it's fulfilled by the Vikings during the Dark Ages or the Mongol Empire during the 13th and 14th centuries, and we could go on through up to modern time and consider various conquering uh, nations that would be some partial fulfillment of the opening of this seal. We continue to see nations conquering and being conquered today, and we can assume that will continue to happen all the way until Christ returns. The cycle of conquest is on repeat until then. There's not a single conqueror who fully satisfies this seal. It has multiple manifestations throughout the present age. Conquering world powers are ultimately under the sovereign reign of Christ. So God has a purpose in using wicked nations or rulers who have wicked purposes. He uses them to bring divine judgment as well as the purification of his people. Saints in all of these nations as well are being purified. And as we see this happening, our knowledge of God's divine will being carried out should motivate us to persevere right in the face of persecution. That should that persecution come to us, we can persevere because we have this knowledge of God's divine will being carried out. So the first seal of conquest is then followed by this second seal in verses three through four of war. All four of these horses bring a judgment that is related to war. Um, The second seal is, is certainly related to conquest, but it focuses specifically upon bloodshed. And yet there's also a connection to persecution that we will explore in a bit, persecution upon the church. Uh, This warfare is physical and spiritual. Once again, there's a demonic motivation involved. And yet 
as we've um, already noted, it's the lamb who remains in control. The lamb as well as opening this seal. So there have been and are and will continue to be wars and rumors of wars, as Jesus says in Mark 13, verse 7. Wars will define each generation until Christ returns to wage the war that will end all wars. Every war is a partial fulfillment of this seal until the final battle ensues upon the return of Christ. So Dennis Johnson says, conquest leads to bloodshed in battle and both serve the will of the Lamb. In verse 4, it says that uh, people should slay one another. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Now look down at verse 9. When, the, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. It's the same word there in the past tense. And so the the idea is that John, whenever he uses this word, it is a term that is always used with reference to the death of Christ or the death of believers, the death of Christians. If verses 4 and 9 are linked to persecution, then this favors the idea that the, the whole passage is related to that theme of the persecution of the church. It's It's here used uh, to indicate that those who were killed during this time will certainly include saints who have suffered to the point of death, saints who have suffered martyrdom. They are willing to sacrifice their physical lives to gain eternal life. The third seal, verses 5 and 6, is famine. And here you have... He opened the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Well, this is a reflection of famine. And a a denarius would have reflected an entire day's wage. And so notice what it bought here was a quart of wheat, which was assumed to have provided basically a a man's daily consumption, what he would have needed to eat, uh, just to satisfy his own calorie count, right? A day's wages would have bought that much wheat, or he could have bought three times that amount of barley, less nutritious, but now he's able to feed a small family, a very small family. So three people could, en- could enjoy a day's wages of barley. So there's no money left over for other necessities. Each member of the family would have then been forced to work and to share earnings to merely survive. Uh, some have determined that the prices are inflated anywhere between 8 and 16 times their average price at that time. So you could imagine today paying $25 or more for a loaf of Wonder Bread or a box of crackers. Exorbitant prices, but the prices here are limited. Notice it said, do not touch, do not harm the oil and wine. These are considered 
basic necessities. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 14, it says, he will give you, or he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. So it's, we shouldn't be reading wine and oil as some luxurious uh, thing that only the rich enjoy, but it's, it's, the base, it's part of the basic necessities. Deuteronomy 11 is just one of many passages you can look to that where grain and wine and oil are all used in the same context as providing basic necessities for people. So the fact that they are spared points to a partial impact of the famine. Famines will continue to occur, but they will never be full or final. Even when our most basic food groups are depleted, God ensures that other forms of sustenance remain. And so the scope of devastation is limited here. In its relation to uh, the previous horses, we can see that famines are often associated with war uh, because the conquering armies would deplete everything in their path. So famine was often the result of war. It's not hard to imagine as well how Christians have often been the first to suffer economic persecution due to opposition to the church. We, I believe, even see that today. It's, it's really the idea behind the mark of the beast. In chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, it says, and Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. So if you want to buy and sell, you must identify with the beast in that passage. It's... The result would be Christians who did not, who remained faithful to Christ, who identified with Christ and not with a beast, would be unable to engage in the economy, be unable to support themselves. And in fact, we've seen this already, right? We've seen an example of this in the letters to the seven churches. Uh, We mentioned how the idolatry of these nations was wrapped up with the economy, so that the trade guilds all had their own uh, personal deity that they worshipped and, and made offerings to. And so if a Christian was to be faithful, then they had to, in some ways, remove themselves from participating in the fullness of the you know, economic um, uh, opportunities before them. Uh, this is especially relevant in Smyrna, who was impoverished, it said, because Uh, and we would say because of their faithfulness to Christ. You see that in chapter 2, verse 9. So as Christians refused to participate in the pagan rituals uh, that pervaded the trade guilds, they would have suffered tremendous financial loss. If the saints will spend eternity praising God for taking away their hunger and their thirst, in chapter 7, verse 16, we see this picture of, of... all of the saints worshiping God and they're praising him for removing hunger and thirst, for taking it away from them so that they will be forever satisfied. Well, then the implication is that they were neglect or that they, they, they had a lack in this life. But God blesses them tremendously for all eternity. 
because of what they suffered. So Christians should expect to go through economic hardship. That shouldn't be surprising to us that our faith would cause us to experience some economic hardship. Maybe losing a job or a promotion due to your Christianity, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise. It's an injustice that we should probably anticipate only increasing until the day Christ returns. And this last seal is the seal of death, verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and look. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its, rider, its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So remember, it is uh, Jesus who was seen in the vision in chapter 1, in verse 18. It was Jesus who holds the keys of death and Hades. Not only is he opening the seal, but we know he holds the authority over releasing, right, and allowing death and Hades to wreak havoc in the way that they will. And here there's a reference to four things, to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts. The same, almost a, almost a quote comes from Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21, where we read, for thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. So these serve here, this, the reference to four disastrous acts of judgments is, is clearly being referred to here in Revelation chapter 6. They serve as a, a summary of the judgments that all four horsemen are bringing. There's this, an allusion as well to Leviticus 26, which we won't turn there, but, but there you find four warnings of judgment that are given against Israel if they fall into idolatry. And part of the purpose of these types of, of calamities is to lead people to repentance. Part of the reason why God was warning them in Leviticus of the dangers of idolatry was so that they would repent when they fall into it to recognize their helplessness and to depend upon the Lord to preserve and protect them. And again, as was the case with the first three seals, this seal reflects a partial judgment. It's not full. It's only a quarter of the earth. It's a large portion indeed, but it's not everyone. And that would make sense if it is a, a summary of the previous three, uh, including the fourth. So again, we can, see, we can expect to see partial fulfillment of all of these kinds of calamities throughout the church age. No particular event or calamity fully satisfies any of these seals, and God is sovereign over all of them. There is not a single calamity that happens outside of his sovereign will. That's true in each of the Old Testament passages that serve as background that we've already referred to. And it's true here in Revelation. So in Revelation, the Lamb opens each of these seals. The question is, how can Christ be sovereign over all of these disasters? In fact, uh, later on in verses um, 16, it, uh, it says the 
they are calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So we could include the one who is seated on the throne is also sovereign, of course, over these calamities. And they're, how though can Christ be sovereign here over these disasters? Well, the answer has to do with the purpose behind them, right? It is Christ sovereignly using tribulation both to sanctify his people and to execute judgment upon his enemies. So each of these seals reflects types of judgment that we have seen in history. There's nothing here that's unique or that we're still waiting to understand. We've seen it partially fulfilled already, and we should expect to see more in the future. We have seen them repeatedly. These are events that we should expect to take place throughout this age until Christ returns. Christ himself told us this in Mark 13, verses 6 through 8. He said, many will come in my name, again, deceiving false prophets, false Christ, antichrist, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are all but the beginning of the birth pains. So sin deserves the wrath of God. And these four horsemen portray that wrath in vivid detail. And Jonathan Edwards wrote about the significant emotional reactions that his congregation experienced in response to his sermons uh, during the Great Awakening. And he reported um, that at one point there were more than 300 who were converted in half a year. Uh, He reported that on three different or successive occasions, he received new members into the church, and the numbers were 180 and 60 as they were coming to to become members of the church. Could you imagine 100 people standing in front of the church and joining, and then 80 the following time he does it, and then another 60? Joseph Tracy in The Great Awakening writes this, in those in whom awakenings seem to have a saving issue. Commonly, the first thing that appears after their legal troubles is a conviction of the justice of God in their condemnation, a sense of their own exceeding sinfulness and the vileness of their performances. God might justly cast them into hell at last because all their labors, all their prayers and tears cannot make atonement for the least sin nor merit any blessing at the hand of God. Nothing they do can make them right with God. And in some cases, their sense of the excellency of God's justice in their condemnation and their approbation of it or their approval of it, their appreciation of his justice was such that they almost called it a willingness to be damned. They were so confident that God's justice was, that he was worthy to carry out his justice even upon them, that they would have been willing to be damned. And if that's truly the case, then it is in line with the reaction that warnings of judgments should have upon unbelievers. 
Christ will judge those who continue in unrepentant rebellion. But if you repent and place your trust in Jesus, then you can be assured that the Lamb of God has already endured the wrath of God in your place. And he protects you. And he causes you to persevere through times of tribulation and trial that are sure to come. And we can be assured that we will be with him where there is no more hunger and thirst for all eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. This, it is a challenging and a difficult word of the wrath of God that is being poured out upon your enemies. And yet we also see it has a sanctifying purpose for believers, for all of us. Not only are we understanding more about you and, and your character and attributes and your holiness, but we are being uh, challenged to persevere where we must cling to Christ through those trials. We must not look to ourselves or anywhere else, but to the only one who can ransom us, who can rescue us and protect us. Lord, may you be the rock of our defense. May you be what our, our sure repose, a place of refuge for us to lean when times of trial come. And as those increase in the last days, Lord, may we remain faithful because of the work of your spirit in our hearts, causing us to cling to Christ and his perfect righteousness. It is in his name that we ask it. Amen.